to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the trial of Bolivian coup leader Janine Añez. Also going to be discussing the recent no-confidence vote uh, against a UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and what that's going to mean both for him, his party, and the politics in the UK. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, more Tuesday primary results are in from across the country and pretty much all the GOP candidates in California, Iowa, Mississippi, Montana, and South Dakota who voted to overturn the 2020 elections in favor of Donald Trump or who have otherwise supported him won their primaries. I expect this pattern to hold as the remaining primaries play out, meaning that whomever the Democrats run against these candidates will still be campaigning against Donald Trump in the midterms. And like I've been saying, they will lose the midterms because Trump's base is ironclad, unified behind their furor. And the Democrats have no policies to run on that they can say made anyone's lives better since Trump's lost. And he absolutely did lose, by the way, no matter what those folks think. The Democrats would have had a better chance convincing people that the election was legitimately lost if Biden and company had actually governed to address the bread and butter issues facing Americans. And Biden clearly could and should have put Manchin and Cinema in their places to get their agenda passed. But no, old bipartisanship Biden conceded too much political ground to the right, as he always does and has done for the past 40 years quite willingly and took to the bully pulpit immediately, disparaging the progressive left of the party, kicking everyone in economic distress in the back. They let the child tax credit expire. They had the botched COVID response. They didn't build back anything. The infrastructure bill just wasn't much of anything. But they are pouring money into an increasingly unpopular war in Ukraine. And going into the midterms, the Democrats have nothing to show for why anybody should vote for any of them. So they're going to televise the January 6th hearings. The Democrats are somehow banking on these hearings being a ratings windfall for all the networks, except for Fox News, which is not going to carry it live, that will broadcast them live and for the Democrats. Axios reports that Thursday's primetime hearings will actually be the first of several events, oh no, that are produced in part by the former president of ABC News, James Goldston. Like the pointless and waste of time Trump impeachment hearings, there will be testimony from key witnesses, allegedly new video footage and speeches, of course, from committee members. The Democrats allegedly have bombshell evidence that Trump was involved in a lot more than just incitement and that the revelations would blow the roof off the House when exposed at the hearings. Oh, yeah? Like the Mueller report was the bombshell that wasn't? The smoking gun that didn't? What's worth noting about these hearings, 
what actually matters is that the January 6th committee does not have the power to prosecute, but investigators have collected reams of potential evidence over the course of 1,000-plus depositions and interviews. The Department of Justice, which does have the power to prosecute, have asked for that evidence and for transcripts of closed-door interviews, including some with Trump associates. The question, of course, is will the DOJ prosecute? And if they do, can they get indictments and convictions of anyone for anything? I hate to tell you this, but I doubt it. And I also hate to tell you that basically people in this country don't care about this hearing and whether anybody who participated and planned January 6th will be held accountable. Well, particularly Republicans. See, just after the riot, two-thirds of Republican voters said the presidential election results were marred by widespread fraud, because, you know, that's what Trump said. Three-quarters of Republicans without a college degree held that view, according to a January 2021 poll by the center-right American Enterprise Institute. Half of Republicans said the left-wing group Antifa was mostly responsible for violence at the Capitol and a discredited theory advanced by some conservative commenters along those lines continued to entrench that idea. And those ideas have hardened with time thanks to conservative media outlets and social media personalities continuing to push those discredited but still widely held believed the ideas among a lot of Republicans. And quite honestly, thanks to a Democratic Party led by a president and full of politicians who promised voters that they would do better than Trump if Biden was elected, and they quite simply have just not. So these hearings are not going to save the Democrats from what they have not done for the American people. And the disastrous summit of the Americas has started in Los Angeles, where the Biden administration is wiping egg off its face after refusing to invite the presidents of Nicaragua, Cuba and Venezuela, claiming that they do not promote democratic values in their countries. In response, Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador did not attend, saying that there can be no summit of the Americas if all the countries of the American continent do not participate. Or there can be, but we believe that means continuing of old politics of interventionism or lack of respect of their communities must end. The leaders of the Northern Triangle countries of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador also refused to attend. And U.S. Assistant Secretary of State Brian Nichols said in defense of the decision of the U.S. to exclude those countries, quote, looking at the current situation in Cuba, in particular with the trials of civil society leaders and similar situations in Nicaragua and Venezuela, we felt that the most appropriate decision was to maintain our own commitment to democracy and human rights in our hemisphere. Well, Cuba and Venezuela and Nicaragua have free and fair elections, universal health care and education, guaranteed housing, and people aren't living on the streets in those countries, and their politicians can actually be recalled in the middle of their terms by referendum vote if the people are not happy with them. All we've gotten out of our so-called democracy and human rights? $135 million a day sent to Ukraine. Is that the democracy and human rights we're remaining committed to? I'm not. And more and more of us are refusing to go along with that. Follow Luke Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Nation 
for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on, as they say. And Jackie, today is June 8th which means it's the first day of the People's Summit for Democracy taking place in Los Angeles, California. This is an awesome uh, 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 gathering of uh, people's movements from different parts of the world. There are folks from Latin America and all sorts of things. And it, uh, we, we spoke with um, uh, uh, one of the participants uh, that will be engaging with uh, the summit a little earlier this week. And she said something that I think is important is about how, you know, this is not just an event. It's not just a conference, but this is really actually set up so that international people's movements can be in conversation with each other, be in debate and really get to the nitty gritty about how we can grow the international people's movement. Now, the People's Summit for Democracy, of course, was organized in contradiction to uh, the Summit of the Americas organized on behalf of the United States government and the Organization of American States, or uh, as we say, the uh, uh, U.S. Uh, Ministry of Colonies, because that's fundamentally how it operates. And as we've been discussing on the show, the Biden administration uh, uh, is excluding the governments of Nicaragua, Venezuela and Cuba uh, from the meeting, supposedly over issues of democracy. Meanwhile, you know, the, the governments of Brazil and Colombia will be there. You know, all of these governments where, you know, human rights violations are a matter of custom. And so obviously the U.S. is not really interested uh, uh, in, you know, defending democracy or whatever, but in truth uh, is just interested in maintaining U.S. imperialism and hegemony in uh, uh, the hemisphere. And they're already being challenged. We're already seeing people um, confront some of these different uh, officials around uh, the nonsense that they've been spreading and how ridiculous this summit is. And we've got a couple of uh, uh, different clips uh, of this. I mean, first one we have is of an activist with the party for Socialism and Liberation, who uh, disrupted OAS chief Luis Almagro at, at a summit of the Americas event and uh, basically calling out Almagro for his role in supporting the 2019 coup in Bolivia uh, that we'll also be discussing a little more in depth later on in the show. So uh, I want to hear that clip and then come on back. And he was killed. You're here. You're here to lecture about media freedom when you insult a dictatorship and murders journalists and murders innocent people. You have blood on your hands. Because of your lies, there was a coup in Bolivia, a coup against the democratically elected government. And that dictatorship that you helped install massacred 36 people, 36 innocent people who are protesting for the restoration of their democracy, for the restoration of the independence of their country. In the towns of Sacaba and Sekata, people were protesting peacefully, indigenous people, workers, women, students, demanding the restoration of that democracy that you helped destroy. Destroy because the United States wanted to plunder the resources, the Bolivia, the gold, all the mineral resources, the gas of Bolivia, the corporations in Wall Street and in the United States 
wanted to loot the resources of Bolivia. And so you helped install a dictatorship that would facilitate that looting. In Sacaba and Sencata, dozens of people were massacred by the soldiers of your dictatorship. The soldiers of your dictatorship. And one of the people, one of the people that your dictatorship murdered was a journalist. Sebastian Moro, he was a journalist who was exposing the lies that you were telling and exposing the truth, the truth about the coup that you orchestrated, and he was beaten to death in his apartment. And now you come here and dare, and dare to lecture about media freedom, about democracy, about human rights. You have no shame. You're a murderer, and you're a puppet of the United States. A puppet of the United States. In Venezuela, too, you dared, you dared to support the coup attempt that Juan Guaido ridiculously, outrageously tried to attempt and declare himself the president of Venezuela. What a lie! What a lie! The majority of people in Venezuela had never even heard of Juan Guaido. And yet you said that he's the president, and I believe you still ridiculously say that Juan Guaido is the president of Venezuela. That is an outrage and it's insult, an insult to the democracy and the sovereignty of the people of Venezuela. How dare you do this? You murderer who murdered people in Bolivia. You murderer who supported the sanctions in Venezuela. The sanctions in Venezuela that killed 40,000 people. 40,000 people because of your lies, because of the coup attempt that you've been part of. Sir, and you are nothing, nothing but a murderer, and you have no sir, shame here to come and talk about human sir. rights, to lecture okay, the whole world, to lecture the whole hemisphere, to lecture the whole hemisphere about democracy and the freedom of the sir. press. Sir. When Sebastian Moro, an Argentine journalist who is in Bolivia, an Argentine journalist who is in Bolivia, exposing the truth about the coup, and he was killed. You're here. You're here. To lecture about media freedom, would you install the dictatorship and murders journalists and murders innocent people, workers, indigenous people, students, you? Boy, Jackie, that's better than coffee right there. You know what I'm saying? This this is the energy that we need. Mm -hmm. This is what we got to do. We got to run down on these uh, imperialist puppets like Luis Almagro, uh, a man who got kicked out of his own political party mm -hmm. and who has been dutiful in his uh, uh, leadership of the U.S. Ministry of Colonies, also known as the Organization of American States, which, as uh, that activist pointed out, was fully supportive of this blood-soaked uh, uh, coup in Bolivia that ousted uh, the democratically elected uh, Abel Morales of the Movement Towards Socialism Party, uh, the first indigenous um, uh, uh, president of that country, mind you, and who replaced him is Janine Añez, right, who is now on trial and will be talking about that trial a little later on the show, but it's not just that this was a, a right-wing dictatorship, dictatorship. This was a, uh, a, a evangelical, uh, anti-indigenous uh, uh, administration, quote-unquote. And, you know, I remember when Anyez first came into power, uh, she she had a Bible and she said something, she had this big Bible, she said something like Jesus or Christ has right. finally returned to Bolivia. I mean, obviously, um, a, a real dig at the uh, uh, indigenous communities of that country. And that activist also pointed out, you know, the massacres that that took place uh, in San Caba and Sakata and, and, and all these sorts of things. And people have, uh, uh, people were 
were slaughtered. People died. I mean, there are associations and organizations of uh, victims that are uh, uh, have been organizing around this. And same with the, the Venezuelan coup. And so to me, it just sort of shows how uh, deep the hypocrisy is of the uh, uh, U.S. government and of the OAS, where they claim to care about democracy, they came to cl- uh, care about human rights, but they support out-and-out, violent, blood-soaked, unelected, and largely unknown uh, uh, dictatorial people like Janine Añez in Bolivia or uh, uh, Juan Guaido in Venezuela. But, I mean, at least, you know, Añez was able to actually um, get in power for a minute. I mean, Juan Guaido was just a complete flop, a fake fraud and a failure. I mean, there's just nothing even remotely uh, legitimate about him, and there uh, uh, never was. You know what I mean? And so, Jackie, the, the fact that uh, we see these kinds of disruptions happening, and I have to say, I was surprised that they let him talk as long as they did before uh, escorting him out, uh, which is what uh, folks were hearing uh, towards the end of uh, uh, the clip there. But, you know, for me, like this, this is like an emboldening thing. I mean, it shows that these imperialists, they're not invincible, Right. They can they can get ran down on. They can be resisted and called out just like anybody else. And as we see um, imperialism on the decline, but still trying to hold its place, this is really the sort of uh, uh, energy that I think we're going to need moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that clip, you know, what happened is so indicative of what resistance looks like and what it has to look like in these moments where these political figures that are propped up by the U.S. hold court in these spaces. And it's a perfect opportunity for us to bring the truth to light because, you know, there's only so many times you can just sit on a stage and say, you're lying, you're lying, when people are standing there telling you, calling the names of people, of journalists who were murdered, to calling out the names of the cities and the provinces and the towns where these horrific uh, dictatorship uh, 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 police forces brutalized indigenous people who were uh, protesting to defend their democracy calling out the hypocrisy of these politicians and uh, uh, the, 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 the carnage that they create in propping up their undemocratic systems that are backed by the United States. And it's interesting, Sean, I found it very interesting that the other person that we heard uh, other than uh, uh, the 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 speaker on the stage, stage was this woman who was screaming, "Get him out of here! Get him out of here!" And uh, to me, that just spoke to what the what liberalism is. It is this desire for order rather than rather than justice. It's preferring, look, well, you and your disruption has to stop. It doesn't matter that everything you're saying is true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. You know, it doesn't matter that that that. Yes, let's talk about that person whose name you just called. Let's talk about that. What happened in the towns that you just mentioned? No, you're disrupting the order, and we need to have order much more than we need to have justice. Yeah. And that, I think that was really striking to me. 
Yeah, totally. And I mean, what kills me, because one of the, the cats that was escorting him out, if you heard, he said something like, sir, we had people that, you know, came here because they wanted to hear this conversation. There's always one person when these things happen that say that. And it's like, yo, he is the head of the Organization of American States. Right. He has a platform and a bully pulpit. I'm not robbing him exactly. of his of his platform by speaking this truth because he'll still be that when he leaves there. And so it's just absurd somehow that you got to be, quote unquote, fair to somebody like uh, Luis Almagro, particularly given the character of the work he does. And uh, I want to go to a next one. So we didn't we didn't knocked out uh, Luis Almagro. Now we're going to move on to U.S. Secretary of State um, Anthony Blinken, who here uh, we'll hear in this next clip is being disrupted by none other than our good friend, Eugene Perrier. Let's give that a listen. I wonder how you justify the invitation of Dr. Ariel Henry from Haiti when he is uh, actually governing with no constitutional mandate. His government has been implicated in many different crimes, including potentially the murder of the past president. Countries like Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua are being uh, excluded from the Summit of the Americas because you deem them to not be democratic. But how can you use that as your justification when you have the so-called prime minister of Haiti who is ruling under no sort of democratic mandate here? Yeah, we, like many other countries, are determined to get to the, fact, to the facts of what happened in Haiti, including the assassination of uh, the previous uh, prime minister. Uh, we're determined to find the facts wherever uh, they lead and to whomever they lead. Well, but does democracy does democracy only matter if they disagree with the United States government? What 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 is what is your what is your actual basis for saying a government is undemocratic and another one it can't be invited and another one that's undemocratic can be invited? Well, first of all, that's my dog. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but again, raising this uh, issue of the hypocrisy of uh, uh, democracy, speaking in this particular case of Haiti, and what he's pointing out is true: is that uh, uh, basically our Dr. Ariel Henry, uh, a hand-picked uh, leader for Haiti at this point, and uh, you know, and I think that there are still are a lot of questions around uh, the assassination of uh, de facto President uh, Jovenel Moïse, and who may or may not have had a finger in it. And but if we think back, uh, Moise's uh, reign, uh, certainly the latter part, I mean, first of all, um, you know, as we've talked about on the show with with different experts on Haiti, um, Moise never had like a popular mandate. You know, he sort of wins these uh, uh, elections on a technicality and, you know, with no small amount of monkey business um, or, you know, uh, a corruption in terms of how those elections played out. Um, but if we recall, the, uh, it was Moise that overstayed his mandate mm-hmm. and disbanded uh, uh, the parliament, if that's the proper word for it, and was ruling by decree. And if that's not a dictatorial way, uh, a form of governance, then I don't know what is. And he was only able to stay in place because the U.S. allowed him to do so. And so it, 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 it and again, so you'll bring in representatives of, of that government, this sort of a handpicked government uh, of Ariel Henry and all these uh, sorts of things who feels to me, at least like he's some kind of placeholder until they can find maybe somebody uh, uh, more stable um, to run Haiti. And we, of course, know that this is a part of a broader and longer history of U.S. colonialism and interference in the uh, uh, politics of Haiti. I mean, we all know about how they kidnapped Jean Bertrand Aristide, who was that country's first democratically elected leader. Right. I mean, imperialism and white supremacy have been just throttling Haiti 
from the time that they became independent. And it continues to this day. And that is precisely what makes an Ariel Henry or a Jovenel Moise of any of these other handpicked Negroes that they put in charge of Haiti. This is what makes them particularly useful for the U.S.'s charade around democracy. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, as journalists, it's our job when we attend these events that are that are, are put on by the empire that that clip is our job. That yeah. is what we're supposed to do. We, You know, you, you heard the other journalist off to the side trying to ask what I'm sure was some softball question. But the point of the Summit of the Americas was supposed to be to uh, coordinate with the democracies in the region. But then the government that is itself not a democracy, the United States is not a democracy, holds forth with leaders that themselves are not democratic, have not been chosen in a democratic way in in those countries, in, in Haiti in particular. So then the question has to be asked, what exactly do you people call a democracy where you are not inviting uh, the leaders of countries that do have? I mean, Venezuela has elections probably every year, you know, in, in some manner. Cuba's uh, electoral process is quite literally from the neighborhood, from block by block up. Yeah. Right. I mean, uh, Nicaragua has extensive free and fair elections where they make sure that even people in the coastal communities, which are predominantly Afro uh, uh, Nicaraguan, are included in the electoral process, has over 80 percent participation in regular elections. How are these countries not democratic? But the United States government is sitting here hosting a leader uh, uh, who they chose, who they chose to lead Haiti until, as you said, Sean, they can find somebody uh, uh, more stable and trustworthy to maintain the capitalist order in that country. That is not democracy, and it's the job of journalists to point out that hypocrisy, not just stand there and ask softball questions, to be polite uh, in the face of these folks. Absolutely. And we're not done with uh, Blinken just yet. We're going to squeeze in one more clip here uh, by uh, Abby Martin of the Empire Files. Secretary Blinken, what about Shireen Abu-Akhlet? She was murdered by Israeli forces, right? CNN just agreed to this. These are your two greatest allies in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia and Israel. They have murdered American journalists and there have been absolutely no repercussions. And you're sitting up here talking about the freedom of press and democracy. The United States is denying sovereignty to tens of millions of people around the world with draconian sanctions for electing leaders that you do not like. Why is there no accountability for Israel or Saudi Arabia for murdering journalists? It is one of the most dangerous places in the world to be a journalist in Palestine. I deplore the loss of uh, Sharif. Um, she was a remarkable journalist, an American citizen, uh, as you all know, and there too. We are determined to follow the facts and get to the truth. The facts of what happened. Secretary Blinken, no, they have not. No, they have not. I'm sorry, with respect, they have not yet been established. Yes, we're looking for, no, they have not. But we're looking for an independent, credible investigation. When that investigation happens, we will follow the facts wherever they lead. It's, it's uh, as straightforward as that. That has not yet happened. Yeah, I mean, we're running out of time, but I mean, that was just so uh, ridiculous to pretend like, you know, it's not 100 percent clear what happened to uh, uh, Sharia Abu Akleh, of course, a Palestinian journalist with Al Jazeera who was recently killed. My friends, this is what real journalists do, right? 
This is what real journalists do. We have to actually challenge these uh, structures of power. We have to challenge these institutions of capitalism and imperialism that is ravaging the earth and not be stenographers for the capitalist state like so many of so-called journalists do today. Shout out to Breakthrough News. Shout out to the Empire Files. Shout out to uh, that activists with the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Uh, this is what we need to do moving forward. And this is how we continue to build uh, uh, this kind of movement that's going to strike a blow against all this nonsense. We'll be right back here on By Any Means Necessary. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the trial of uh, Bolivian coup leader Janine Añez. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Camila Escalante, reporter and founding editor of Calcitune News. Camila, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It's really great to be on. Absolutely. And it's great to have you, Camilla, as this week, the Bolivian Attorney General's Office has requested a 15-year prison sentence for a coup leader, Janine Añez, uh, who, of course, came into power following the ouster of uh, Evo Morales, who was forced into exile. And uh, it was a pretty uh, a brutal and blood-soaked reign uh, with massacres of indigenous people and uh, all sorts of things, of course, all with the support of the United States government. And Camila, you're there in La Paz, Bolivia, where the trial is taking place. You've been doing some reporting on the ground. I mean, uh, it looks like a pretty uh, intense scene for people who are, who are out front, who are talking about the crimes of uh, Añez and her administration. And so I was hoping you could uh, uh, just sort of help us understand some of the details of this case, how it's playing out, uh, uh, what are people saying and feeling on the ground, and just uh, what have you been perceiving up until this point? point. Right. Well, people are asking for the maximum sentence, which is 30 years of prison. But as you said, the prosecutor has asked for 15 years in this case. And that's because there are multiple cases against Janine Añez and against other coup leaders and actors of the coup, including the police and military that, you know, really helped support the coup. There wouldn't be a coup without their help. So in this case, which is the Golpe de Estado dos case, uh, the coup d'etat two case, um, she's being tried for the crimes that she committed leading up to the point which she swore herself in as president of Bolivia. To do so, she had to first swear herself in as president of the Senate. She was just a senator, an unknown senator. Of course, she was like a bit of a Juan Guaido figure here in Bolivia. Nobody knew who she was internationally. And even within the country, people didn't know that she was one of their lawmakers, except for the people uh, represented by her in her home department of Beni. Beni's not even a, a department that people really pay attention to. It's the Amazon. It borders uh, Brazil. And so she was completely unknown. And without quorum, she went and unconstitutionally swore herself in as president of the Senate. And they did so by politically persecuting and by locking out 
the members of the Senate and the Plurinational uh, Legislative Assembly so that those members of the mass, the movement towards socialism, who actually had the majority in the legislature then at the time in 2019, as they do again now, they weren't able to, you know, protest or anything like that. And they were actually being um, abused and roughed up outside of the legislature by the police that were conspiring with the coup leaders. So a series of things took place, you know, before the actual massacres and the political persecution that, you know, we saw unfold throughout that coup year. And so this initial period, which is the early days of November 2019, is what she's being tried for right now. And so a lot of people who are out here protesting, we've seen protests for months because this case has been delayed and postponed many times since the beginning of the year, really since January. She was first uh, picked up and arrested trying to flee to Brazil um, in March of 2021. So she's been in jail for more than a year um, on pretrial detention because they knew because so many of the coup actors have fled to Brazil and the United States that she was also at risk of fleeing. So they jailed her at the time and they've had to renew, uh, you know, that period of time which she's held while this trial is supposed to be uh, initiated. But it's been delayed many times on the grounds that she has health problems, also because of uh, supposed anxiety anxiety attacks um, and things like this. All of a sudden she has diabetes and hypertension and anorexia and all sorts of other things that we've learned about in these last months. And so finally they were able to uh, you know, block these appeals by her legal team and the court had to, you know, reinstate the trial. So we've had people protesting outside of the Miraflores prison for so many months where she has been held. We've had people protesting outside the courts and outside of government offices, such as the, the Ministry of Justice, demanding that authorities do their job and implement justice, carry out justice as they have agreed to, not only within Bolivia with the victims associations, but also with international bodies, the international uh, or the Inter-American Court of Justice or the Inter-American Court, um, sorry, the CIDH, which is the Inter-American Court of Human Rights in English, um, has been here. They did a couple of reports in 2019, right after the coup took place, and then they had to do a fuller report. And they came and, you know, what they said was that the justice needs to be carried out for the victims of the coup and anyone who was persecuted and, and suffered during that period. So Bolivia now has has to meet that uh, meet those agreements with the victims, uh, you know, foremost. And so um, although this is only possibly going to be a 15 year sentence that we hope to see this week, as the trial continues this afternoon at 2 p.m., uh, there are other trials against her. And now the Pacto de Unidad, which is the uh, organizations of social movements which make up uh, the base of the movement towards socialism, say that they're going to be launching their own case against her. And this case is going to be not only against Janine Añez for all of the crimes committed during the coup, including the corruption and everything else, but it's going to make sure to include all of the coup leaders who continue to hold public office, who continue to receive and use state funding for their own corrupt use and everything else. So they say that they'll be asking for the 30-year maximum in that case, which will soon be launched.
Yeah, you know, Camilla, there is uh, like a two-part uh, uh, um, a segment to this trial against Añez where this particular case is called the coup d'etat two case. But there was a coup d'etat one case, apparently, where she was charged with terrorism, sedition, and conspiracy. And these seem to be separate charges from what she is charged with in this case. So what what was the terrorism and the sedition and the conspiracy that she was charged with in the coup d'etat one case? Well, it's a lot to keep track of. And I can tell you there's a lot of you know media here and as well as internationally that can't keep track of all the details. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of different things that she's that you know she's been accused of, but some of the most shocking things I think are the way in which the Bolivian coup regime communicated with the uh, Mauricio Macri regime in Argentina, the former president of Argentina, who actually sent weapons and ammunition during the November 2019 coup. They also solicited weapons and military, uh, you know financing that sort of thing from uh, from Lenin Moreno in Ecuador and Bolsonaro. So they were speaking to other countries and trying to get weapons because they didn't have enough in stock in order to carry out the levels of repression against the anti-coup protests, protesters, which were largely indigenous people and campesinos, that they wanted to carry out to try to repress this uprising that was happening in several major hot points around the country. That's one of the things that happened. Of course, you know, they went and, you know, even before uh, they received some of those supplies from the exterior, they carried out those acts of violence, including the massacres in uh, the city of El Alto, in an area called Sencata, and in Sacaba, which is in Cochabamba. And, um, but there were several other acts of repression that took place. They just did not account as, as massacres. But, um, you know, during the coup year, there were also these instances, as I mentioned previously, um, having to do with corruption, in which, you know, they used COVID to try to get um, a number of uh, different things needed to uh, treat COVID, ventilators, test kits, things like this at surplus prices, and they were pocketing the money. And so there are all sorts of things that the, you know, the, the uh, prosecutor, um, they're looking for the sort of evidence needed to pack that into the case against her, because it's a long list of crimes that we're talking about here. Absolutely. And, you know, Camilla, what continues to really shock me is how the the opposition uh, uh, represented by Añez and her cohorts and her lawyers and her supporters is that there was no coup and that it just straight up didn't happen. And that the Añez uh, uh, presidency was, you know, somehow sanctioned or uh, uh, legitimate. I even remember I, I went to a solidarity action with Bolivia here in D.C. and a group of coup supporters showed up chanting at us. Uh, this is not a coup. And so I'm just wondering, like, what is even the reasoning um, behind that line, I mean, obviously they have to have some sort of justification, but I mean, it, it really doesn't take much to see this for what it is. I mean, just a blatant uh, regime change operation in a progressive country in Latin America. This is an ongoing debate within the country. You know, what Jean Añez and her defense and 
but even more so those leaders of the coup who still have not themselves been jailed and are out free. What they want to argue is that this was a constitutional secession and that what took place is what is supposed to happen when the president is absent from the country and then the vice president and then the first president of the Senate and so forth that eventually she was supposed to take power. And they have to say that because they know that this is going to get to them when the cases come around and roll around and pick them up for pretrial detention for them to be tried for their central roles. But, you know, the what what the prosecution here is arguing is that, um, you know, at no point and no different scenario, even if there was some sort of quorum and things were done in a certain way, would she ever have become president? Uh, there's just absolutely no way. But um, of course, that argument continues to be made to try to um, attack uh, former President Evo Morales, who's now the president of Movement Towards Socialism Party, and to attack the you know sitting president Luis Arce, and you know they are going to continue to attempt uh, to wage coups as they have, and say that this government has taken power um, you know illegitimately, and that Evo was to begin with um, you know. Uh, governing beyond his mandate. They have different stories. Um, You know, sometimes they say that he shouldn't have run to begin with and that, you know, power had to be stripped from him because he, um, you know, was was governing beyond his mandate. But other times they say it's because of electoral fraud, which is what Luis Almagro and the OAS said. But these are actually two different stories that they say. So they're constantly contradicting each other. But unfortunately, the right wing has a hold on, you know, some of the narrative that goes over the mainstream airwaves within the country. But I think internationally, it's very clear that it was a coup. And even some of the more liberal uh, governments um, outside of the region and within the region know exactly what it was and see it for what it was. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Camilla, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the trajectory of UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dr. Kenneth Surin, Professor Emeritus and former director of the Center for European Studies at Duke University. Dr. Surin, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. Absolutely. And Dr. Surin, uh, here recently, a UK Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, uh, faced a no-confidence vote uh, uh, following the decision from 40% of the legislators from his own uh, uh, conservative party, which I believe uh, voted to remove him in a secret ballot uh, here recently. And uh, it seems that he's uh, skated by, at least uh, up until this point. And doctor, I was hoping you could contextualize Uh, this no-confidence vote, uh, why do you think it happened? What do you think it means? And, you know, how do you see it reflecting on the politics of the UK right now? Well, I think the the vote was a culmination um, of a whole series of events. 
um, the most prominent of which was the so-called Partygate scandal, um, which, to put it very briefly, uh, involved holding a whole series of parties um, between May and Christmas 2020, when uh, Britain was in a lockdown, uh, a rather severe lockdown, um, over the COVID pandemic. Um, All forms of social gathering, um, except members of an immediate household, were prohibited. Uh, And, of course, Downing Street, the Prime Minister's official residence, was Partygate Central during that time. Um, But there are other matters uh, which do not involve uh, Partygate. Uh, There is his attempt to break the Brexit agreement with the EU over the so-called Northern Ireland Protocol, um, which, to put it briefly, requires a border to exist between the north of Ireland uh, and the rest of the United Kingdom. Um, That is necessitated by the fact that the Good Friday Agreement, uh, which brought peace to Northern Ireland, requires a frictionless border to exist between the Republic of Ireland, which is a member of the EU, and the North of Ireland. Um, He signed that agreement, but he wants to break it down. Um, And, of course, he has a history of repeated lying. He misled Parliament over uh, uh, over lying, Uh, where Partygate is concerned. He's being investigated by a parliamentary committee on standards, uh, which is due, I think, to convene um, later this month. And, of course, the majority on that committee are conservatives, um, but it would be no surprise if they found him guilty of misleading Parliament, and that is a resignation issue. Um, He lied to the Queen in the lead-up to Brexit, and um, his personal life uh, has been, um, shall we say, uh, tainted by scandal, um, I think, ever since he was a student at Oxford University. Um, There are several other things that I could go on, but I think this gives your listeners a flavor of what kind of person is leading the United Kingdom. Mm, it sounds uh, oddly familiar to the kind of person that once led this country and could possibly again, uh, Dr. Surin. But, you know, in uh, uh, after the confidence vote, which came in uh, positively for Boris Johnson in his favor, he said that it was a convincing result, a decisive result. And what it means is that as a government, we can move on and focus on the stuff that I think really matters to people. But the tally of the votes did not seem to be decisive and convincing to me, where it seems like uh, 148 votes in the ballot was secret uh, came in to uh, uh, as a no confidence for Boris Johnson, but just 211 
came in in favor, which I mean, yes, it's a majority, but it doesn't seem decisive. And there is talk that there could be continued efforts in Parliament to remove Boris Johnson, even though uh, another no confidence vote or confidence vote can't be held for another year. So what what is in the works? What are the Parliament members uh, working on in regard to trying to remove Boris Johnson? Um, you're absolutely right. Uh, to provide a bit of historical context, um, his margin of victory in this no-confidence vote is smaller than previous uh, no-confidence votes uh, regarding his predecessors as prime minister. Um, it's a smaller margin of victory uh, than the one that Mrs. Thatcher had, and she was, just, of course, gone within a matter of months despite surviving that vote. It is a smaller margin of victory uh, than his immediate predecessor, um, Mrs. Uh, Theresa May, uh, who survived but was gone within a matter of months. Now, as regards the protocol for uh, having another no-confidence vote, the Conservative Party is notoriously malleable when it comes to um, its rules. I think that if Boris Johnson fails at the next hurdle, which are two by-elections to be held on the 23rd of this month, uh, the rules might be changed uh, in order for someone to challenge him again. I think at the moment, the reason why he survived this vote is that there is too much timidity on the part of potential successors to Boris Johnson uh, to mount a serious campaign against him. And I think he's trading on that, uh, trading on the cowardice, there's no other word uh, but cowardice, uh, of his likely opponent uh, in order to survive. Yeah, and it's interesting when, when you talk about how um, the sort of timid response from his potential uh, successors uh, is a factor in this. I mean, why do you think they're, they're operating in that way? Where do you think this timidity comes from? And who are these people? Well, in order to get Brexit done, uh, Boris Johnson basically reconfigured the Conservative Party. Uh, he purged it of all the people who were sympathetic towards the EU. Uh, no one in his cabinet is sympathetic towards EU. No preferment, and of course politics is always a matter of preferment, even in so-called democracies, as you well know, um, no preferment was conferred on anyone who had sympathies for the EU. They were completely marginalized in the Conservative Party of today, which basically was reshaped into a Brexit party and nothing else. So um, having cleansed it, so to speak, uh, of anyone who could be a credible opponent. Uh, he's left with second and third raters uh, in a position of power. And um, they don't have the capability uh, and they don't have, for want of the word, a better word, uh, the fortitude 
uh, I think the word used by some commentators in the UK is testicular fortitude uh, in order to, um, to mount a challenge to him. Yeah, that is uh, definitely uh, the case. So what does this portend, I think, for uh, a country that is uh, facing still not sure what it's going to do about Brexit? Because it's clear that it has not been uh, settled, even though the measure passed, uh, and still contending with uh, issues with COVID lockdowns, and, and people are still very uncomfortable with both the government policy toward COVID lockdowns, but also the way figures like Boris Johnson and members of parliament have uh, responded or acted during the lockdowns. What does this portend for his popularity with the people in the UK? Well, uh, if you go by the opinion polls, his popularity at the moment is rock bottom. Um, So basically he's ignoring uh, the views of the potential British electorate. Now, as regards to Brexit, well, some of the implications of Brexit uh, have still to kick in. Um, there are measures uh, regarding regulations uh, where trade is concerned um, that are still to be implemented. Now, the bottom line here is this. Boris Johnson, in his eagerness to tell the British public that he got Brexit done, signed up to a deal that really was rotten for the British people. Um, he didn't think he didn't think through um, the implications of the agreement that he signed to. Um, he didn't prepare properly uh, for the consequences of the disruption to trade uh, between the EU and the UK, etc., etc. Um, so basically, uh, he signed up to a rubbish deal, sold it to the British people uh, using lies primarily, uh, won uh, his uh, um, general election in 2019 on the basis of those lies, um, and the British people are now I think, slowly waking up to the fact that they were taken for a ride. Um, So he's lost his popularity. And, of course, this is the one weapon, uh, really, I should say potential weapon, because it has not materialized, that could prompt conservative members of parliament um, to... uh, possess more fortitude in their resistance to Boris Johnson, because they go back to their districts, to use the word uh, from this country, constituencies is the word in the UK. And of course, they're finding out that because of the unpopularity of Boris Johnson, their own prospects for re-election as members of parliament in a future election could be jeopardized. So... um, I think that is a force that many conservative MPs who voted against Boris Johnson this time with the no confidence vote took into account. It was purely for them a matter of their political survival. There were one or two, of course, who said it's a matter of principle. Uh, lying to Parliament is a resignation affair. It has always been that. And um, 
But apart from that, uh, it's purely a matter of political self-survival that motivates these members of parliament. So his unpopularity, I think, is for now potentially uh, an important consideration. Yeah, and on that similar note, Doctor, when you talk about Boris Johnson ignoring the concerns of the British electorate and um, having these uh, rock-bottom uh, uh, popularity polls and things like this, I mean, what do you think that means for his political future? I mean, do you think that he'll be able to remain in power? I mean, is there some element of support that he still has that allows him to remain in place? I mean, since it doesn't seem like uh, he seems set to change course anytime real soon, I just wonder if you think he's, you know, uh, uh, along for this world in terms of his position there as prime minister. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. Um, conservative political commentators, um, apart from those who uh, belong to uh, the wacko right-wing fringe, uh, have basically uh, said that he'll be gone within a year. Um, as the 20... Um, 24 election uh, looms increasingly closer, uh, and his ratings remain um, at rock bottom. MPs will be concerned about uh, their political future, and with the horizon uh, shortening as it approaches them, their political survival will be the key consideration. And I think I agree with these conservative political commentators that most likely he'll be gone within a year. There's no way that he can come back from this. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Doctor, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, June 8th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that by calling us at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time today at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.mave, that's M-A-V-E, dot 
digital, and you can listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we are streaming for your viewing pleasure live right now on Rumble, rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do when we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Dr. Gerald Horn. Moore's Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston and the author of dozens of books, including the newest piece, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Dr. Horn, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. And Dr. Horn, I'm really glad we have you on today because I wanted to discuss your new book on uh, Texas, the counter-revolution of 1836, because it just feels relevant giving uh, not only the the recent tragic mass shooting in Uvalde, uh, uh, Texas, but also because of the growing threat of uh, organized uh, fascism here in the United States. And uh, in terms of how that unfolds in the U.S., uh, I know that Texas has a history there that is more than considerable. So I was hoping you could not only sort of break down um, sort of what is the thrust of your latest piece here, but how you see this history connected to developments we see happening in our world right now. Well, this book on Texas tries to suggest that in order to understand the roots of U.S. fascism would be helpful to understand the history of Texas, not only because Texas has the largest black population in the United States of America as we speak, but that is based upon the fact that Texas in the 19th century was this unique combination of where the Old South, speaking of Dixie slavery, met the Wild West, speaking of the liquidation of the indigenous. One of the roots of U.S. fascism, as I see it, is that it would be a mistake to focus solely and wholly and exclusively on the leaders, for example, on Mr. Trump and those in his immediate circle. If you look at Texas, the liquidation of the indigenous population, to a certain degree, bubbled up from the grassroots. That is to say that Washington, particularly after Texas had seceded from Mexico in 1836, because Mexico had moved to abolish slavery under a president of African descent, speaking of Vicente Guerrero, and Sam Houston and Stephen F. Austin and the other uh, freebooters in this part of the country who did not want to accept abolition, then seceded, just like their forebearers had succeeded in 1776 to make sure that slavery continued. But what's striking and remarkable is that when Texas was independent, an independent nation, it was in the forefront of the African slave trade. The Lone Star flag could be found off the coast of Cuba, off the coast of Brazil, off the coast of Angola, uh, Southwest Africa. But as well, after Texas was forced to enter the United States in 1845, because it could not withstand abolitionist pressure, from the United States, from Haiti, from Britain. What's interesting 
is that the United States, Washington, wanted what was considered to be the liberal position, which is you put the Native Americans on reservations. The grassroots in Texas said, no way. There had to be a liquidation of the Native American population. And therein, I think you begin to espy the roots of U.S. fascism, because as a number of historians before and since have pointed out, Adolf Hitler, when he was surging to power in the 1930s, pointed to the United States, and he suggested that there was hardly a whimper and a cry globally when the Texans, for example, were liquidating in mass the indigenous population. 200 years ago, this part of the United States and this part of North America was teeming with Comanches. They're barely to be found today. And he thought that that was a signal that he could do something similar in Central and Eastern Europe. And so today we've come full circle. We know that tomorrow there will be hearings with regard to unfolding the January 6, 2021 plot to have a coup d'etat that would effectuate the continuing power of Mr. Trump. We know that the Republicans on the right wing are trying to rig elections so that they will never have to give up power, power forevermore. And we know that the tip of the iceberg as to what's being visited upon the black population today, police terror, police killings, Buffalo massacres, death penalty, mass incarceration, as noted, that's just the tip of the iceberg, just an indication of what might come unless we're increasingly vigilant and increasingly more organizationally minded. And, you know, I wonder, Dr. Horn, if there are any correlations you see between the fight against the expansion of slavery in Mexico uh, uh, in the 1800s uh, against, you know, that that was the result of those uh, wars that were fought uh, between Texas and Mexico and that kind of thing to the the resistance of countries in the Americas, led by the president of Mexico today, uh, 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 Gabriel uh, um, Amlo. Sorry, I'm, I'm, it's, it's been a long lunch, so <laughs> my brain is a little slow. Do, do you see any correlations between the fight against the expansion of slavery in history uh, in Mexico and uh, Mexico leading, it, seeming, it seems to be, the countries in the Americas against the imperialist uh, uh, interventions and policies in the U.S. as represented by the Summit of the Americas today? Obviously, you're onto something. Certainly, we see the glimmering, the outline of a new correlation of forces globally. In this hemisphere, this new correlation of forces globally can be counted by saying who is not present in Los Angeles with this so-called Summit of the Americas. Uh, Certainly, uh, Mexico, the largest Spanish-speaking population, Uh, in the world has to be seen as being in the vanguard, but not far behind, of course, are Cuba, uh, Venezuela, uh, Nicaragua, not far behind are Bolivia, not far behind, we hope, is Colombia, under, we hope, a President Petro, not far behind, we hope, is a Brazil, under an incoming President Lula da Silva. And this in some ways, mirrors what happened in the 19th century, because, as I suggested a moment or two ago, Mexico, under Vicente Guerrero, a president of African descent, was not only uh, leading the struggle against slavery, 
But one of the points that Washington objected to and the Texas freebooters led by Sam Houston and Stephen F. Austin objected to was that Mexico wanted to extend abolition to Cuba as well. Keep in mind that Cuba didn't abolish slavery after the United States did. That is to say, in the 1880s. We know that in Cartagena, on the northern coast of South America, in today's Colombia, uh, that there has historically been a substantial population of African descent uh, that in some ways uh, prefigure the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804. Uh, speaking of which, of course, uh, Haiti was a de facto ally uh, of uh, independent Mexico. And speaking of Haiti today, we know that if present uh, prognostications hold, uh, rather shortly, Haiti will be entering the African Union and be a member not only of CARICOM, the Caribbean community, but the African Union, and therefore has the possibility, the potential, to play the role that it played in the 19th century, play that role in the 21st century, as a leader internationally of diasporic Africans, including those diasporic Africans in North America. And so there are many parallels between what I write about in my book on 19th century Texas and what we're struggling against and struggling for in North America in the 21st century. Mm, I mean, what you're laying out here is some really fascinating uh, history, Dr. Horn. And, you know, I'm wondering sort of your general thoughts about these January 6th hearings, you know, that that are coming up and that just I mean, look, I I think I think it's possible that um, there might be some valuable revelations that come out of this. But I mean, to me, and and we talked about this on the show in in the period immediately following um, the the attack on uh, the Capitol on January 6th about how this kind of paralysis set in the ruling class and that, frankly, the Democrats uh, missed their uh, opportunity to uh, really take Trump out once and for all by not charging him and the heads of all these uh, uh, far right groups with a seditious conspiracy and as such gave him an opportunity to be rehabilitated. And now, you know, he's uh, basically in good position to make a run in 2024 if that's uh, what he chooses to do. But um, sort of looking at the the way that uh, they're sort of setting this up and playing this out, it almost feels as though there might just be, you know, more political theater that doesn't uh, that may not actually address Uh, some of the most uh, critical issues at hand as the Democrats seem, you know, content to make a fuss over things without uh, 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 actually wanting to resolve them. You know what I mean? And so I'm not only I'm curious your thoughts on the value of these hearings and (laughs) frankly, what it could even mean when we are very clearly in a moment where uh, open far right violence in the United States is on the rise. Well, your point is well taken, but I would make a couple of points in response. Uh, One is that in January 2021, I was part and still am part of a left-leaning organization that was reluctant to recognize what was before its very eyes. The interpretation that emerged was that January 6th was just a Democratic Party talking point and that it had nothing to do with an attempted coup d'etat, nothing to do with uh, shutting down elections, perhaps on the presidential level forevermore. And so I'm hoping that at least uh, that particular misreading uh, can be rebutted. Although one of the things I've learned from politics in the United States is that 
even when revelation arrives, that doesn't necessarily mean people will change their pre-existing positions. But certainly for the historical record, I hope that it is fleshed out to an extent that, assuming there is a future in the United States and the world, that future historians will be able to tell a tale that will be edifying to future generations. And second of all, as a historian, I have to look for deeper roots with regard to where we are today, uh, going beyond the obvious weaknesses of the Democratic Party, uh, going beyond the obvious uh, fascist and neo-fascist leanings of the Republican Party. And I think that a fateful uh, misdirection was executed when organizations in our community basically decided to throw in their lot with the liberals and throw overboard the radicals led by Paul Robeson. And now we're at this juncture where it's not even clear, given the sense of fascism, that the liberals can save themselves, let alone us. And so we need to draw the appropriate lesson from that. And that's what disturbs me, is that I don't see necessarily that appropriate lesson being drawn, which means that we are in deeper trouble than the most pessimistic can imagine. Yeah, and on that note, because I'm glad that you raised uh, the response from uh, elements of the black community to January 6th, because I sort of noted, uh, I think, the same kind of attitude, this notion of that somehow that had nothing to do with black folks. This was a dust up between uh, uh, white people and didn't really concern us. And there's no reason for us to really be that concerned or think any that deeply of it. And that was worrisome to me as well, because you're talking about a, a mob, an armed mob of racists that um, had help from uh, uh, right-wing officials that uh, are already in place to really carry this thing out. And if we somehow think that that kind of violence is just going to be reserved for the Capitol, well, then, you know, we're fooling ourselves. And, I mean, I think that in the weeks leading up to that, uh, uh, to January 6th here in D.C., we saw proof positive of that, as some of those same elements were brutalizing uh, uh, counter-protesters here in D.C. and attacking them and things like this. And so, I mean, where do you think think that that misreading comes from, Dr. Horn, and why there seems to be a kind of, I don't know, gap in terms of sort of the deeper implications of uh, uh, what took place on January 6th and how some folks are or have processed it, you know? Well, I'm giving an interview in a few days with regard to whether or not black people should be concerned about Ukraine, Russia, or should be concerned about international affairs in any case. And one of the points I plan to make is a lot of black people must think that there's sort of a, a black neutron bomb. You know about the neutron bomb that was developed a few decades ago that kills people and leaves buildings standing. People must think that there's a neutron bomb that kills white people if it's dropped, but leaves black people standing. I mean, or alternatively, they decided in a de facto sense that they'd rather react to things that happen to them. They'd rather wait into the neutron bomb or the nuclear bomb was en route and then try to do something about it as opposed to intervening beforehand to try to stop it from taking place. And I understand that because, as you know, historically, given the background in slavery and resistance, which we trumpet all of the time, there is a sort of bravado in the black community, particularly amongst black men, but not only black men, uh, where you try to put forth the, this front of aggressiveness, but at the same time, you know, <laughs> as, as, as the example of Robeson, 
suggest, an example of Martin Luther King suggests when he veers into the war in Vietnam, that once you start talking about international affairs, the ruling class comes down on you with a ton of bricks. And so people realize that, so they feel it's safer just to hide under your desk when something is happening in the world that might be troublesome, and then uh, appearing from out under your desk periodically to pump up your chest and try to act like you're still a macho person, as opposed to trying to stop this madness from happening, because you know that a ton of bricks is going to land on your head. And so it's a very unique and peculiar circumstance that we face, but I'm afraid to say that that kind of posturing is passe, not that it was ever uh, productive in any case, but certainly at the moment, it's outlived this shelf life. Yeah, that definitely seems to be the case. Definitely seems to be the case. And I feel like even that kind of attitude speaks to uh, a kind of separation from radical internationalist politics that used to be uh, more standard amongst black folks in this country. But, you know, years of uh, attacks on movements and the marginalizing of ideas and peoples. I mean, the incarceration and assassination of leaders have, I think, very purposefully created a rift in that way that we desperately need to try to mend. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Dr. Gerald Horn. And Dr. Horn, a moment ago, uh, you mentioned how uh, you'll be having an interview soon talking about why black folks should be um, concerned with uh, 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 the, the war in Ukraine and the Russian invasion and really that part of the world. And, you know, the point you made about the, the black neutron bomb was well taken. Uh, but but it does make me question, you know, wh- what are your sort of feelings about where the Ukraine war stands today? Because it, it almost feels like we're um, seeing a kind of slight shift in 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 the narrative, because ever since February 24th, when uh, Vladimir Putin launched what uh, he described as a special military operation. There has been, you know, breathless and incessant uh, uh, imperialist war propaganda. I don't know what else to call it. Um, all of this basically driving a uh, a very black and white, binary, easily digestible narrative of Ukraine good, Russia bad, NATO good. All these sorts of things. We have to uh, continue to send billions and billions and billions of dollars to Ukraine, even though we ain't even got baby formula here in the United States. You know what I mean? And so uh, I don't know if you uh, sense that thinking around this may be starting to change somewhat, though I certainly don't think the overall orientation toward it will change. But I'm just sort of wondering how it's all striking you at this moment, particularly as the West has made it clear that this uh, conflict is set to go on for some time. Well, I'm I'm looking beyond the tunnel that leads one to see this conflict from Washington to Kiev to Moscow and looking, for example, towards Africa, where not only you had President Macky Sall of Senegal, the titular leader of the African Union, 
uh, traveled to Sochi just a few days ago to meet with President Putin, or the man he referred to, at least according to the New York Times, as, quote, my dear friend Vladimir. And he made a plea with regard to making sure that grain shipments from that part of Europe made it to Africa. And what strikes me about this war is that if you look at Africa in particular, you see a growing hysteria in the North Atlantic countries about the fact that Africa is not necessarily gung-ho about this conflict and is reluctant to sign on to the sanctions crusade against Moscow. And, of course, it's in good company with New Delhi, uh, Beijing, uh, Tehran, uh, Jakarta, et cetera, not to mention Mexico City, Cuba, et cetera. And that event has led to Congressman Gregory Meeks, a leading member of the Congressional Black Caucus, chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, carrying legislation on Capitol Hill that would penalize African nations that do not sign on to sanctions. Obviously, this is a misreading of the history of his constituents, who are mostly of African descent. Uh, once again, uh, you see Congressman Meeks throwing in his lot with U.S. imperialism. Apparently, he is of the mindset that if somehow this sanctions boycott and divestment crusade against Moscow succeeds, I guess he thinks that that will uh, lead, perhaps, or at least some of his supporters think it will lead to a successful sanctions boycott and divestment uh, crusade towards Israel, for example. But sober analysts recognize that, to the contrary, that it will only lead to stage two, a confrontation with the People's Republic of China, which this conflict in Central and Eastern Europe is all about, as represented by Mr. Biden's trip a few days ago to Northeast Europe, excuse me, Northeast Asia, uh, Seoul and Tokyo to be specific, where he's trying to knock together an anti-China alliance. And so what's happening is that if you reference my remarks a moment or two ago about the summit of the Americas and Mexico's changing role in the hemisphere and the bloc developing around China that includes uh, Iran and Russia in the first instance, we're seeing a new division of the world. And once again, our constituents are going to have to determine which side are they on. Are they going to side with U.S. imperialism, which obviously is leading us towards fascism, leading us towards Buffalo massacres, or are we going to go with the other side and have them put pressure on U.S. imperialism to get their foot off our neck? Hmm. You know, and I think this is uh, the question that is facing everybody else in the world, at least the other world leaders. You know, which side are they on? And it seems like, and you know, in, in regard to this Ukraine uh, proxy war, it seems like countries like France, Germany and Italy might be edging toward being at least more publicly pushing for uh, negotiations and ceasefires rather than, you know, the full throated continued support for U.S. military uh, and other allied military support to Ukraine. What do you think that that is, what do you think is fueling that, the fact that France, Germany, and Italy are are now more openly calling for negotiations and ceasefires and appear to be showing cracks in the uh, uh, U.S. imperialist uh, allyship uh, in support of this proxy war? With regard to France, there are parliamentary elections in a few days, and there is a possibility, an underlying possibility, that the left, uh, led by Jean-Luc Mélenchon, uh, will emerge 
as a prime minister under President Macron. And the cohabitation, as they call it in Paris, would be a major setback to the center-right of Mr. Macron. With regard to Germany, a close neighbor of Poland, I think that you don't have to be an oracle to recognize, A, that futures prices with regard to natural gas are already going up. Germany is frantically trying to reorient itself away from Russian natural gas, but it's probably too late to keep German constituents from freezing in the dark within a few months of winter uh, 2022. And then Germany, as a close ally of Poland, to go back to that point, recognizes that if you look at your map, that you will see this area of Russia called Kaliningrad, which abuts Poland and Lithuania, just like uh, Alaska and Hawaii are not necessarily tied to what is called the lower 48. It's no secret that Poland has eyes on that Russian territory and that whatever happens in Ukraine, or I should say, if the conflict in Ukraine Inter, uh, uh, emerges in a satisfactory manner uh, for both Zelensky and Warsaw, uh, that they won't stop there. The next on the list will be Kaliningrad, which is mean a uh, continued confrontation and conflict uh, with Russia. And France and Germany, who are supposedly the leaders of the European Union, have to make a determination are they chumps? Or are they basically not only chumps of the big dog, which is U.S. imperialism, but chumps for the little puppies, like Poland, for example, that they can be manipulated easily. And the fact that I cannot answer that question definitively as of June 8th, 2022, tells you all that you need to know. <laughs> yeah. And, and speaking of France, uh, uh, Dr. Horn, when we talk about um, the role of the African continent in geopolitics right now and where it is situated. I'm wondering if you sort of see um, a connection between the issues with France and uh, its former colonies uh, in, in the Sahel region and uh, things like this. And even if we talk about because, you know, NATO obviously is is a, is was one of the driving factors of uh, the war in Ukraine. And if memory serves, I believe uh, NATO's first uh, major military operation on the African continent was Libya. That's all the toppling of the Muammar uh, Gaddafi government. And so, I mean, within that, how do you sort of see uh, how the African continent is, is uh, sort of situated within uh, the conflict of Ukraine and what that might mean, you know, uh, in terms of how, you know, Washington and Moscow and Kiev are sort of orienting towards the thing? Well, Africa, once again, exposes and reveals the cruel dilemma of French imperialism in particular. On the one hand, France is in conflict with U.S. imperialism. President Macron some months ago referred to NATO, led by the United States, as being brain dead. President Macron was upset when U.S. imperialism elbowed aside France and scooped up a multi-billion dollar submarine deal with Australia. But at the same time, French imperialism maintains this new empire in Africa that ultimately is dependent upon U.S. satellite assets, for example, votes for the United, uh, at, at the United Nations Security Council uh, by the United States to authorize U.N. troops, uh, therefore ne necessitating France not having to send more of its troops to places like Mali, where it was just uh, evicted. And of course, Mali is really a hotspot uh, for France nowadays because uh, it's rebelling against uh, French imperialism, sending, in Paris's mind, a dangerous signal 
uh, to the other members of the so-called Francophone Africa bloc. And then, as we know, if there's going to be an effective boycott of Russian resources, there's going to have to be doubling down on African resources, Algerian natural gas, Nigerian petroleum, Angolan petroleum, uh, South African gold. All of those uh, minerals and resources had been coming from Russia. But if you're going to have a boycott against Russia, something has to give. And so this is the dilemma of these imperialists, uh, that the walls are closing in on them, and they have few effective answers. Yeah, and this does not bode well for the former colonial powers uh, in Africa, in the uh, in the countries where, you know, they're being kicked out of Mali, uh, France is, uh, with the help of the Soviet Union, or I'm sorry, uh, the Russian troops, by the way, uh, helped kick uh, the French troops out of Mali, uh, the, you know, the former colonizing powers are not doing as well uh, on their in their far, former colonies as they used to do. They're not as as welcome. There's a lot of internal upheaval against neocolonialism on the continent that this proxy war is certainly not helping. And the fact that, as you just pointed out, the uh, increased uh, 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 resource need that is going to have to come from many African nations, that puts these African nations in a better bargaining position uh, to provide these resources. However, there are the issues of some of the Comprador class leaders. So, so where does that really put the African people, the people in these countries that their, their countries could provide their resources, but some of their leaders are still kind of beholden to the former colonial masters and the new neo-colonial masters, Dr. Horn? Well, certainly that, that is a dilemma. But you see that Washington, U.S. imperialism, is responding to the dilemma by beefing up AFRICOM, the Africa Command, I'm sure you know that Africa Command, AFRICOM now has a new leader, a black American, Lieutenant General Mark Langley. I trust and I hope he did not change his surname in order to have it correspond with CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, show his allegiance to U.S. imperialism. But in any case, you also saw just recently uh, Mr. Biden, who pledged to end the so-called forever wars, and to build back better at home, as opposed to sending tax dollars abroad, uh, just authorized the sending of hundreds of U.S. troops and forces to Somalia and the strategically cited the Horn of Africa, uh, amongst other duties, I'm afraid to say, that these U.S. soldiers will be a kind of murder incorporated, uh, targeted and tasked with the ugly and odious task of murdering uh, leaders of al-Shabaab a so-called terrorist group, according to Washington's vision. And that does not bode well for Somalia's neighbors, speaking of Kenya and Ethiopia, uh, and not to mention uh, Sudan. So the the, the problem is that these comprador leaders that you make reference to uh, do not act in a vacuum. They do not act in isolation. Uh, They are bolstered and buttressed by Paris, Washington, London, and Berlin, which makes all the more important for our side to be aware of the abject necessity of bolstering the other side, the forces of resistance, as we used to call them. 
Yeah, and you brought up uh, Lieutenant General Michael Langley, uh, uh, Dr. Horn, who is set to be um, the next uh, head of AFRICOM. I mean, this is a cat from uh, Shreveport, Louisiana, so uh, a Southern boy like myself. And I'm wondering if you think that the choosing of a black man to head up AFRICOM is coincidental or perhaps purposeful here in the age of intersectional imperialism. And also remembering that AFRICOM came into operation under the first black president of the United States, of course, Barack Obama, although I believe it was formally established before he came into office. And, you know, I'm just wondering if you think that there's any um, relevance there to, uh, you know, the, the the blackness of a Michael Langley. I mean, particularly looking at, you know, the superficial um, uh, diversity that we see elsewhere in the Biden administration. You know, it's no secret that for the longest period, U.S. imperialism has decided to deploy its so-called African-American assets on the continent of Africa as if that would be sufficient to throw dust in the eyes of the African masses. Recall that it was in early 1966 that a former NAACP official, Franklin Williams, then serving as ambassador in Ghana, West Africa, was instrumental in the overthrow of Kwame Nkrumah. Uh, There was quite a bit of upset uh, in Washington about Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana, his relationship to Patrice Lumumba of Congo, now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And we all know about the role of Colin Powell, the late Colin Powell, General Powell of Jamaican origin, and his role in perpetrating U.S. imperialism in battlefields too numerous to mention, including Southeast Asia, Iraq, etc., But this underscores and underlines our responsibility to try to spread the news that that particular setup, I don't believe, is sustainable. I don't think it was sustainable when it was first enunciated. It's certainly not sustainable today when we're staring down the barrel of fascism, neo-fascism, which may be just around the corner. And as my book that you so kindly mentioned at the top of the program on Texas tends to suggest— It would be a horror of horrors, a combination of slavery and Jim Crow, too ghastly and too ghoulish to contemplate. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's uh, likely the case. And speaking of your uh, book on Texas, uh, uh, Dr. Horn, um, you know, I noticed that, you know, on the cover there, there's a small uh, swastika there that's placed, I think, as a part of the reference to, you know, Texas's history with, uh, you know, the, the organization of far right groups. Now, I was hoping you could get more into that um, within the context of uh, the growing fascism here in the U.S. Well, let, let's begin with today, for example. It's no accident, as the stories like to say, that Uvalde, the massacre of 10 year olds happened in Texas. It's no accident that the National Rifle Association has one of its strongest uh, chapters in Texas. In fact, uh, Mr. Trump uh, suggested that uh, the NRA should move its corporate headquarters to Texas and live happily ever after. It's no accident that Gun Owners of America, which sees the National Rifle Association as well, uh, is strongly entrenched in Texas. And this brings me to another point. This, this is the, the peril and the folly of killing after our liberal friends. You might have seen this op-ed in the New York Times a few days ago by an editor of the Texas Monthly who suggested that Governor Abbott and his cabal and the GOP, that they only represent 4% of Texas. And that, that is just so misleading, because 
it leads folks to believe that these people don't have a mass base. They have a mass base. How do you think they win elections all the time? See, it, 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 and it, and it really sort of uh, disables and disarms the black population, which if they read that might believe it and think, oh, there's nothing to worry about. They only represent 4%. That means they don't represent 96%. And you see this as well with regard to debates erupting in history, uh, whereas having this growing core of historians who are challenging the creation myths of the United States, and yet the liberals are still preaching the old-time religion, where supposedly this was this grand revolution that perpetrated by these men, founding fathers who walked on water. We haven't seen the likes of them before or since. And then how did they reconcile that with the Second Amendment, which was obviously directed at putting guns in the hands of settlers, such as the settlers in Texas, so that they could liquidate Comanches and indigenous in places like Texas and keep the enslaved Africans in line. So what's happening is that the traditional narrative of the United States is decomposing, but to the extent that it decomposes, it seems that some of our liberal friends cling to it with ever more ferocity and are continually misleading and misguiding our constituents as a result. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Dr. Gerald Horn is here. And Dr. Horn, a moment ago, you were talking about how the traditional narrative of the United States is decomposing, like a corpse decomposes, right? And I'm wondering what you see as the ripple effects to this, the impacts, because in the same way that there's a, there's a material basis to that decomposition, right? And therefore, it's going to have a material impact. And I think that there are a number of material issues facing poor working and oppressed people in the United States uh, today as that narrative is crumbling, whether it's climate change or the economy or racist police terror or gun violence and, and all these uh, different things. And so, you know, uh, what do you see as sort of the, 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 the impacts of the decomposing of this traditional narrative? And as movement people, what do you see as our appropriate response? Well, I think the impact is clear. I don't think you can begin to understand the hysteria about so-called critical race theory and the hysteria about uh, bringing a true, accurate, and adequate uh, version of history to our youth in kindergarten through 12th grade. You cannot understand that climate, that hysteria, without understanding the decomposition of the traditional narrative, which is leading teachers in particular to search for a new narrative that will grip the imagination of their students. Now, our responsibility is clear. Uh, certainly, we have to seize every opportunity to expose the myth makers, for example. We have to seize every opportunity to create space 
for Democrat organizing of for example, have to seize every microphone before us to spread the word about the absolute necessity of internationalism, because given the strength of the country, the way we have been able to overcome that historical demerit against our attempt to organize successfully has been to lengthen the battlefield. And that's basically what's missing today, which is why I'm so happy we have mentioned what's happening in Los Angeles with the People's Summit and the Summit of the Americas with regard to the necessity of getting involved and raising our voices concerning um, Gregory Meek's legislation seeking to punish Africa, for example, which is obviously inimical to our interests. I think that uh, what we need to do is evident and apparent. The question is, do we have the will or do we have the organizational muscle to execute? Yeah, you know, that is absolutely true. And there's a a great comment in the chat. Shout out to the By Any Means Necessary chat, where I think we have to always raise this issue about these things that we need to do in movement spaces. Big Teal said, sometimes I'm afraid to get on mics at public events. And I I feel that. I absolutely feel that. And I think that's true for a lot of people because people, Dr. Horn, look at you and me and Sean and, and, you know, our comrades, you know, Eugene Perrier and and Abby Martin and the kind of a direct challenge, the direct resistance that they carried out at the uh, events at the summit for the Americas that we uh, we uh, highlighted in the first hour here today, you know, they look at it and they say, oh, I could never, you know, be that brave. I can't talk like, you know, you all do. And I can't find the words and I get nervous. And I think that's most people. But I contend, Dr. Horn, that if people can't find the words, if they're nervous, if they don't know what to say, they can always show up and provide the mic. They can show up and hold the mic. They can show up and hold signs. They can show up and chant, but they have to show up. We can't just have a few well-spoken, brave, quote-unquote, folks. And by the way, folks, um, just uh, pro tip, we're not all that brave. We're just angry. We're just angry enough to do this work because we we believe in what we talk about. But I think we have to encourage people who believe that the only way to be in movement spaces is to be out front and on the mic, Dr. Horn. Well, I mean, that, that's obvious as the nose on your face. I mean, you don't have to be an eloquent speaker to have a session at your residence where you're showing on a regular basis educational documentaries to your workmates, to your classmates, to your neighbors, etc. Uh, you don't have to be an eloquent speaker in order to organize your work mates, your classmates, to attend a demonstration. So, uh, you know, I mean, it it, it would be as if the point that I mentioned a moment ago were not adhered to. Remember a moment ago I said that when you try to understand fascism, you not only have to understand the leaders, you have to understand the grassroots. And so to just look at the people at the microphone and act like that's the alpha and omega, that that's the A, B, C to Z in the story is fallacious. I mean, for every leader, there have to be people helping to uphold that leader. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you know, what Jackie said a moment ago, you know, about folks thinking, well, you know, I'm not that brave. You know, the beautiful part of being in a movement and being in organizations 
is that you don't have to be uh, that brave all by yourself. You're strengthened by the, the work and the determination and tenacity of your comrades and the people that you're organizing with. I mean, I think that I, I don't, sometimes I don't think people grasp the deep value that there is. I mean, the way that being a part of a movement can lift you up as a person. I mean, you're around all these capable, brilliant, serious people who not only understand the problem, but know the solution and are building towards that. I mean, that's a beautiful thing. I mean, you would be surprised the things that you're capable of when you have the support of uh, a movement and uh, uh, an organization. And also on the piece about uh, being on the mic, it's absolutely true that, you know, agitation or public speaking is just one aspect of movement work. And in reality, a lot of the, you know, um, and now it's important, mind you, because, you know, communicating is important. But I mean, a lot of things, uh, matter of fact, I dare say most things actually happen behind closed doors. And so I'm of the belief that as movement people, we should be trying to develop ourselves to be as well-rounded as possible. So if need be, you can speak, you can handle logistics, you can, you know what I'm saying, bring the water, you know what I'm saying? There's something that uh, 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 everyone can do to contribute in some kind of way. But, you know, for people hearing this, I encourage you, don't feel like you, you should just only be good at one aspect of movement building because not only, uh, I mean, it's good that you're uh, skilled at that, but you know, what kind of training are we doing to make sure other people are good at that? What is the exchange? It's kind of like when we talk about pedagogy and political education as a dialogue and not a monologue. You know what I mean? This is how a lot of these things uh, get fleshed out and developed, I think. And so it, it can definitely be scary stepping out of your comfort zone, but it is infinitely rewarding, not only on a personal level, but in terms of how it allows us to further contribute to this movement. And uh, Dr. Holm, we got about 10 minutes or so left and not to make like too hard of a pivot, but I know you were interested in talking about um, the NBA playoffs. I was just looking at uh, the latest lists of um, possible and confirmed injuries and things like that. Got to say, I haven't been following it. As y'all know, I don't really watch conventional sports, but definitely wondering what, uh, how you think some of these dynamics will shake out here in the playoffs. Well, months ago, I vowed that the Boston Celtics would prevail. It's on the record. It's a matter of public record. Now, the series is tied one-to-one with the Golden State Warriors, meaning the San Francisco Bay Area Warriors. And I still stand by the point. Now, I have no love for the city of Boston. I recall when the great center, black American Bill Russell, with roots in Louisiana and growing up in Oakland, played for the Boston Celtics. He said he would throw up before every game. Now, supposedly, it was because of nervous energy. I always thought it was because of the racism that he was facing in that most racist of U.S. cities. But I took note of the fact of what Jason Tatum, who was a star player for the Boston Celtics, and also, uh, I'm happy to say, from my hometown of St. Louis, Missouri, uh, what he said in the newspaper the other day, which I think is a lesson to all struggles uh, in the venues. He said in the fourth quarter of the first game, which they won, uh, they were down by a tremendous amount, but they did not bellyache. They did not tear up into one another. They did not moan and groan. They got together and tried to put their heads together to figure out what to do. I think that's the way we in politics need to think and act. That is to say, we're certainly down in the fourth 
quarter of this game, but we don't need to be twiddling our thumbs. We don't need to be attacking one another. We need to put our heads together to figure out what we can do so that at the end we can prevail. Yeah, and, you know, you mentioned the Boston Celtics, and this feels so random, but I, Dr. Horn, I don't know, have you seen uh, the Winning Time show about uh, the Lakers and the Celtics and, you know, Magic Johnson and all that? Well, I read about it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, well, as a historian, you'll likely have some issues with it, but um, I, I think you'd appreciate the entertainment value of it uh, nonetheless. Well, Jackie Luke, I think you were trying to get in there. Yeah, you know, and I, I do wonder when I I think about, uh, you know, the NBA playoffs, I too am not paying any attention to the NBA playoffs. I have not watched professional sports in I don't know how long, not for any particular political reasons, but, you know, I just get caught up in, in zombie uh, movies, basically. That's that's just that's my thing. But I, I mean, I do wonder when, you know, both teams have so many injuries in order for them to continue to play, they have to have a pretty deep bench. I know that much that, you know, you've got a bunch of, of star starters who are injured. You've got to have somebody halfway reliable, especially in the playoffs, to carry you through the rest of these games. And I, I feel I feel a comparison to movement work coming on here, uh, uh, Dr. Horn. And and I and I, I wonder how you see us having or developing that deep a bench so that even as we are kind of down in the third quarter and way behind, how we develop that very deep bench that'll take us over uh, the hump and actually win for all of us. Well, certainly with regard to politics, we need much more emphasis on political education. And with regard to the earlier commenter who had an aversion to going before the mic, what I could have mentioned was that you need people who are well-versed in Robert's Rules of Order, for example. I've been in meetings of hundreds or even of thousands where the person who had mastered the rules of parliamentary procedure was able to direct that mass to a predetermined outcome because of their knowledge. You need people who know how to take minutes and know how to take minutes strategically because the minutes of a meeting helps to guide you going forward to the next meeting and the next meeting after that. And certainly, I remember when I was much younger, which I'm afraid to say is no longer the case, that uh, study circles, political education, reading groups, study groups, were all the range where four or five people, sometimes more, would get together and study a particular text, go over it collectively. I don't see that happening as much anymore. And I think you can mark the decline of our movement uh, from the decline of the heyday of study groups, for example. Yeah, you know, it's funny how by any means necessary, it seems like we always find ourselves back at political education. You know, I, I, you know, and it's not and, and, and it is really most times it's not even really uh, on purpose. And you're right. And because, you know, Dr. Horn, I, I kind of noticed that. There are I noticed that there are like a number of different like reading groups and things like that. But, you know, they're, they're scattershot and not connected to broader efforts, uh, which I think could could make them even more impactful. So, you know, instead of it just being, you know, a group of people who you know are reading Mao or or Walter Rodney or, you know, Ho Chi Minh or whatever it is, that is um, edifying in and of itself. But 
The thing about study, and I'm really learning this lately, the thing about study is that it is far more uh, uh, valuable if it is connected, if it's relevant to either the politics or the, of the day or, of, or if it's sort of related to what you all are trying to accomplish as a group. There's a million things that is worthy of our attention in terms of uh, uh, what we read. But, you know, it, 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 it all isn't necessarily helping to drive us towards uh, uh, a more fleshed out and thoroughgoing movement. You know what I mean? And, and I think that this is actually uh, a characteristic of the moment that we're in. And what I mean by that is there's a trend that eschews uh, a certain kind of organization or even the party formation as a concept. If 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 I'm being honest and, you know, I don't know if it's just um, an anarchist influence or or whatever, but people there, there is a thought that, you know, uh, centralized, understood, acknowledged uh, leadership is somehow considered as being less than democratic. I mean, when in truth, uh, if we look throughout history and in terms of the people who are actually successful carrying out revolutions, well, then they had some sort of uh, a similar structure. And, and you all have heard me say this on the show a million times. If we look at the capitalist state, if we look at the capitalist class, they are highly centralized, highly organized and highly class conscious. The poor working and oppressed people of the United States are none of those things at this moment, though they certainly have the potential to be. And it is, in my humble opinion, next to impossible to think that we are somehow going to combat and decisively overthrow a structure or state apparatus at that level of organization with disorganization. It simply uh, cannot happen. And so this is a part of uh, uh, the struggle that I think that can be sort of difficult. But the thing about it, as frustrating as it can be, I recognize that every era and every age has its Uh, political contradictions, it's ideological issues, and we're certainly dealing with uh, a number of those today. But uh, in truth, I think we have to see that we really have to look seriously and critically about what we're up against and not just these kinds of, you know, broad things that we generally talk about, but look how the ruling class actually operates and understand what it is exactly that's its soft underbelly that can be struck at to really knock them out the box once and for all. It's just like we were talking earlier about um, the uh, the activists and the journalists that, that disrupted Luis Almagro and um, um, uh, uh, Anthony Blinken during the, the summit of the Americas, this, you know, ridiculous exclusionary sort of thing. I mean, that kind of bravery is precisely what comes from being a part of these movements. And this is precisely what I'm saying. And so this is what we must build. But we thank you so much, Dr. Horn, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.